The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting sustainability now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. For information, visit SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. And thank you, SSRF, for supporting community radio, K-Squid 90.7 FM. K-Squid listeners, it's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. We spend a lot of time worrying about climate change. Not that it isn't a threat, but we know that it's coming will span decades. At the same moment, there is another long-standing threat that could happen at any time and would do even more damage to human society and nature nuclear war. There are many observers who fear that Russia might use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, setting off what was once called a ladder of escalation, an uncontrolled ramping up of nuclear attacks leading to planetary holocaust. My guest today is Dr. Helen Caldicott, live from Australia. According to Dr. Caldicott, the nuclear doomsday clock of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is set at 100 seconds to midnight, but 20 seconds is closer to the mark. Dr. Caldicott has devoted the last 42 years to an international campaign to educate the public about the medical hazards of the nuclear age and the necessary changes in human behavior to stop environmental destruction and nuclear catastrophe. She calls this global preventative medicine. Caldicott is also the subject of If You Love This Planet, which won an Academy Award in 1982 for Best Documentary. Dr. Helen Caldicott, welcome to Sustainability Now!, How did you get into the anti-nuclear business? Well, when I was 18, I read a book uh, called On the Beach by an Australian author called Neville Shute. And it was about a nuclear war that occurred by accident. And everyone in the world was killed except people in Melbourne, which is where I lived. And gradually the radiation came down to Melbourne um, and parents were dispensed cyanide capsules so they could kill their babies so they wouldn't die the horrific effects of acute radiation illness, vomiting and bleeding to death. And at the end of the book, and the end of the story, everybody died in Melbourne. And that marked my soul. I was only 18, I was in medical school, and I was always aware from then on about the horrors of nuclear weapons and nuclear war. Well, I recall that, um, I, I read it probably when I was much younger, but I also recall that there were critics of the book who said it over, it over, it, it exaggerated the effects of nuclear war, and that, of course, was a, re, uh, a, a recurrent theme amongst nuclear strategists. What, 
why don't you summarize for us what would be the the global impacts of of a nuclear war? Well, um, America and Russia both have about 6,000 nuclear weapons. And I want to describe to you the effect of one bomb dropping on a city, okay? Yeah. Um, it's a 20 megaton bomb, which is very huge. Uh, but but there, are, uh, there could be 10 or 60 smaller hydrogen bombs on a city. Um, the Russians have about 200 weapons of this size and they'd almost certainly be used on large cities like New York, Philadelphia, Washington, etc. So, let me tell you, the bomb will come in on a missile travelling at 20 times the speed of sound, so you won't hear it. It explodes at ground level on a clear day, releasing the heat 20 times that inside the centre of the sun, millions of degrees centigrade, in the fraction of a millionth of a second. It will dig a hole three quarters of a mile wide and 800 feet deep, converting all people, buildings and the earth and rocks below to radioactive fallout particles shot up in the atmosphere in the mushroom cloud. Six miles from the epicentre, every building will be flattened, every person killed. Because the human body is composed mostly of water, when exposed to this degree of temperature, it turns into gas. There are sh photos of shadows of people on pavements in Hiroshima. 20 miles from the epicenter, all people will be killed or lethally injured. Most buildings destroyed. These heats hit this heat to vaporize. Um, people beyond the six mile limit, uh, who happen to look at the flash, their eyes will melt and run down their cheeks. Um, John Hershey took Hiroshima there are about 30 men all in exactly the same nightmarish state. Their faces were wholly burnt, their eye sockets were hollow, the fluid from their melted eyes run down their cheeks, their mouths were mere swallowed, husk-covered wounds, which could not bear to stretch enough to admit the spout of a teapot. Other people were charcoalized. A woman who was running hold a baby, holding a baby and turned into a charcoal statue. Huge pressures will create winds of 500 miles an hour, causing thousands of injuries. A normal hurricane has a velocity of only 120 miles an hour. These winds will literally pick people off the pavement, turning them into um, travelling objects. Uh, they hit the nearest solid wall or object, they'll die from internal injuries. These overpressures rupture the, the lungs, rupture the eardrums. Um, glass is very vulnerable to overpressures, so the windows will popcorn, extruding outwards by these forces and shatter into millions of sharp pieces of flying glass. Travelling at 100 miles an hour, the shards could penetrate human flesh, producing shocking lacerations and hemorrhages. The Pentagon, in fact, has published a large book called The Effects of Nuclear Weapons, in which complex equations and formulas calculate how far a piece of glass travelling at 100 miles an hour will penetrate human flesh. All the huge buildings will collapse. 35% of the energy of the bomb is released as heat. This radiant heat will produce hundreds of thousands of severe burns. Burns are the most typical difficult patients we ever treat. 
20 miles from the epicenter, the heat from the explosion will still be so intense that try objects such as clothes, curtains, upholstery, dry wool will spontaneously ignite. 40 miles away from the flash, people who glance reflexly at the incredible light will be instantly burned at, blinded by burns to the retina or back of the eye. Huge fires will burn over the entire area uh, and these fires will spread out and can exceed can, uh, 100 miles an hour in speed. The wind creates a low pressure area as it moves upward, surrounding oxygen rich air, rushes in and feeds the many fires that have been ignited in houses, gasoline tanks, liquid natural gas facilities, oil tanks. Um, so the fires would probably coalesce across America, north to south, east and west, and the whole country will burn. Now that's not just America, that's Russia, uh, that's Europe, that's all the cities are targeted there. So, and, and the targeting is all set up. Um, and nuclear war only takes about an hour to complete because as the missiles are coming from one side, say from Russia, they take uh, half an hour to go from launch to land. Meanwhile, the American radar picks up the attack, sees the weapons, and the president has a three-minute decision time whether or not to press his button. So the whole thing is only is over in about one hour. That's what we're facing. That's what the world is facing now. We're closer to nuclear war than we've ever been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I got to know Robert McNamara, Kennedy's Secretary of State, and he said to me, Helen, we were so close, he said, to within three minutes of nuclear war. So here we are, two nuclear nations facing each other, the stupid men on each side, you know, with their testosterone poisoning, threatening each other, not not admitting that they're threatening the whole, not just the human race, but the wonderful planetary life involved over millions of years. Because as everything burns, a huge cloud of toxic black radioactive smoke will be elevated into the stratosphere above the Earth, blocking the sun from the Earth for about 10 years, causing what we call nuclear winter, temperatures will freeze and and people will freeze to death in the dark and most organisms in the planet world too. So we're talking about the expiration of planetary life. And how dare these men build these nuclear weapons and America's spending one trillion trillion dollars at the moment making every single nuclear weapon, every single missile, every single plane, every single ship in its madness. Absolute madness, and the and the Congress has just voted eight hundred and fifty-eight billion dollars to build more of these blasted weapons. These people are mad. They're absolute, well, they're murderers. They're psychopathic, and they're they're uh, ready to to destroy their own lives. Suicidal. They're suicidal. Um, what's the current U.S. stance? on the launch of nuclear missiles. The, the, the Biden administration has been pretty quiet about this, but, but I know that behind the scenes there are strategists and defense analysts who are 
quite busy thinking about this. Do you... Oh, yes. Every, everything is ready to go. As I described, nothing's changed. Everything is ready to go. There's always an officer walking behind Biden with a suitcase called the football. And mm -hmm. in the football are the codes that start a nuclear war. When Reagan was shot, they lost the football for three days. <laughs> really? But, you know, we're, we're on very perilous ground. I, I wake up each morning and look out the window at my roses and think, well, they're still here. But I, I've accepted the fact that I could be annihilated along with the rest of the human race with my beloved children and grandchildren. I mean, and I would advise people to watch my film, If You Love This Planet. It was a lecture I gave 40 years ago, filmed by the Canadian Film Board. It's only half an hour long. If you go to my website, helencaldicott.com, you can download it and watch it. It won an Oscar, but it breaks through what is called psychic numbing, how we're all sort of numbed to the reality of what could happen to us today, tonight or tomorrow. And when, and it makes people cry. And you need to cry. It's like me as a doctor telling a person that they've got cancer, you know, or leukemia and how they could die. I've done that so many times, but I am now a doctor practicing global preventive medicine, telling the whole world what could happen if we don't pull back and get rid of these weapons. Um, as I was doing research for the show, I, I found um, some articles, uh, some some studies or, or reports about what's now called prompt global strike. Are you familiar with that? No. Uh, okay, so so this is the idea of putting non-nuclear weapons on uh, hypersonic and cruise missiles, and essentially sending them into the Kremlin bathroom. Right. So yeah, that's so a good now idea. now the the accuracy of nu of nuclear and non-nuclear weapons is so high. That it is possible, as we have seen, you know, it's possible to target individuals, which, of course, was not the case uh, 40 years ago. Um, but but what what I thought was alarming was, of course, that although this this it's specified for non-nuclear warheads, those could just as easily be nuclear. Um, yes, and the Rus Russians would not know. So therefore, it's a fallacy to think it's any better. It's just ridiculous and stupid of these stupid men to think that the Russians would know it's only, you know, a conventional weapon and not nuclear. So I want to tell you what America's strategy is for nuclear war. Okay. First of all, they take out Moscow so that Putin can't press his button, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that only takes half an hour. So that, that's what you do. Well, the Russians, aware that that could happen, have dug a huge cave in the Ural Mountains and put a missile in there. And if that happens and Moscow is taken up, this missile launches automatically into the sky and has the computers to launch all the nuclear weapons in Russia. And it's called the dead hand. I right. met, actually, the man who created that. He actually came to my house in Australia and drank coffee with me, and he was extremely worried about it. So I mean, this, the whole thing is absolutely clinically insane, and all these people who are involved in this, <laughs> I'm saying this reasonably as a physician, should be put in psychiatric hospitals. 
they're sociopaths and psychopaths. I mean, what? Do you know how hard we work to to save a patient in the intensive care unit? We stay up all night, all day with them. It's but the, the planet is in the, in the intensive care unit, and no one seems to give one damn, including Rupert Murdoch, who runs most of the media in your country. Uh-huh. Um, uh, just as a note, um, before we take a, a short break, when I, again, when I was doing research, I was looking at the uh, Homeland Security website, the you know, Department of Homeland Security, which yeah. does have websites about what to do in the event of nuclear war, which surprised yeah. me because, of course, again, again, there isn't much you can do. Um, but the fact that it was there... Uh, and was you know had been updated. It's it's not something from forty years ago. It's it's current material. Although I'm sure well, they... these men, these people are nutty. Um, well, uh, in fact, the New New York City, I think, or state, has just put out a video to say in the event of nuclear war, and I think it might be on my webpage, HelenCaldergott.com. In the event of nuclear war, you go inside, you stay calm. You get away from the windows and you wait. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing is absolute insanity. We're, we're dealing with people who are not in touch with reality and they're the ones who are in charge of our lives and the lives of our kangaroos and wombats and emus and lions and tigers, everything. I mean, the, these, <laughs> these people should be treated psychiatrically and the Congress... Let me say, most of them are corporate prostitutes because they vote for weapons systems consistently. The highest they've ever voted for this year was $858 billion for more weapons of death. And the reason they do is that the corporations like Lockheed Martin, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, you name it, have been clever and put the factories for various parts of weapons in every congressional district, like the seats for the F-35 in one district, the landing wheels in another. So when it comes up in Congress to vote against weapons, jobs are screamed. And so therefore the the Congress people vote for jobs in their district. I mean, if, if you psychoanalyze this, this is, this is a period of true insanity. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Dr. Helen Holt Caldicott, a uh, well-known, internationally known anti-nuclear weapons activist who, who began her activities back in the late 1970s and continues today. And we've been talking about the the effects of nuclear war, as well as the system that uh, produces them and tries to uh, create a logic for having them. Uh, just to go back to um, your your work in the 1970s, you were instrumental in the revival of Physicians for Social Responsibility. And I was wondering, you know, how did that come about and, and why that particular organization? Yes, well, a young doctor called Ira Helfand, who was working at the Cambridge City Hospital, came to me at my office at Harvard Medical School and Children's Hospital, and there was a, a, a referendum in Cambridge where Harvard and MIT are located, 
against all things nuclear. Um, and that was antithetical to what Harvard wanted. And MIT, who has a small reactor on its campus, was against it too. And he came to me asking what we, how we should confront this. And as we, as we talked, and I think I'd read, already written my book, Nuclear Madness, um, about nuclear power and nuclear war, I turned to him and I said, right, Ira, this is a medical issue. Let's start a medical organisation. Well, it happened that Physicians for Social Responsibility had been started in the early 80s and they worked to stop weapons being exploded in the atmosphere, uh, but they died. There was a bit of fighting amongst the people and it was dead. But someone who was formerly a treasurer said, look, I think it's still registered in the state of Massachusetts. Instead of going through all that formulaic rubbish, let's just take that name, which we did. Um, and soon after we started it, uh, I put an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine, which I created, outlining the medical effects of nuclear power and a meltdown. Well, that ad was published two or three days after Three Mile Island melted down. Yeah. So we were besieged by members um, from the medical profession. And over time, I traveled all over the country speaking in hospitals. Every week, there's a session called Grand Rounds where doctors all come together to hear the latest in nephrology or cardiology or neurology. And I would talk about the medical effects of nuclear war. And so we recruited over time uh, 32,000 doctors and then I taught them how to go on television, how to go on radio, how to write op-ed pieces. And we gradually educated the American public. What's more, um, I had an agent in Hollywood who offered to work for me for free. And she represented Tom Cruise and Lily Tomlin and all of the top film stars. And so she was able to put me on a conservative woman doctor, an alien actually, on television all over the country, also in Vogue and Time and Life. So Mr. and Mrs. Joe Sixpack, who were just sitting watching television, um, learned about the medical effects of nuclear war. And over the 80s, at the end of the 80s, 80% 80 of Americans supported an end to the nuclear arms race. In 82, we had a, um, a million people marching in Central Park, which was absolutely astonishing, the largest march ever in the history of America. And that movement, which was then international, because I travelled around countries all over the world, Japan, Canada, Germany, Switzerland, England, Scotland, Ireland, starting similar medical groups, and Gorbachev also learnt about the medical dangers. And he and Reagan then met in Reykjavik in 1988. And over a weekend, those two men almost agreed to abolish nuclear weapons, but they got stuck up on Star Wars, which Reagan was wedded to. He imagined it like a big sort of uh, huge thing over America and the weapons would come in and bounce off. I mean, he really didn't understand anything. And so that didn't come to pass, but it did end the Cold War. 
I met with Reagan during the eighties in the in the Oval Office. No, in his his library in the White House. His daughter had heard me talk at the Playboy Mansion, um, where there were a lot of film stars, <laughs> and I gave a talk about nuclear war. And she came up to me, Patty Davison, said, "Look." I think you're the only person on earth who can change my father's mind. Will you see him? And I did a quick double think and I said, yeah, I'll see him alone. I don't want any of his advisors there. So I had an hour and a quarter with him. Wow. Patty just sat there, said nothing. He uh, said to me, I said, you probably don't know who I am. And he said, yes, you're an Australian. You read On the Beach and as a young girl and you're scared <laughs> of nuclear war. And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, I too am scared of nuclear war, but the way to prevent it is to build more bombs. So we were off to a flying start. He read to me from the Reader's Digest. He really was very ignorant about almost everything. And I just finished my book, Missile Envy. So I was just full of facts and figures. And I would correct him and he'd get quite flustered. So I had to hold his hand quite a lot to reassure him like a doctor-patient relationship. I left the meeting uh, saying that I thought he had impending Alzheimer's clinically, which he did. Mm -hmm. If you go to my website, helencaldercock.com, there is a, a, a little video there of me describing in succinct terms my meeting with Reagan. And that will allow you to understand who is in charge of our world today. Well, I, I I think I remember Reagan saying that facts are stupid things, and um, he's, it's, a, it's a lot like a more recent uh, a more recent president. Um, you've expressed concern about uh, the potential consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the possibility of of nuclear weapons. Can, can you talk to us about that? Yes, I think it's absolutely hideous. I mean. In this day and age that they're bombing civilians and killing children and bombing hospitals and it's obscene. Not that America hasn't done that. Since 9-11, America's killed over one million people, according to a study at Brown University in Yemen, Iraq, Ira uh, not Iran, uh, but, you know, everywhere. It's just been sick. So what the Russians are doing, America's been doing since 9-11 and killing people. I mean, as a doctor, I just can't. When I was working in casualty, you know, I, ha I used to have to go and tell parents their child had died or been run over by a car. I mean, it's just hideous. And so what America's done and now Russia's doing is raining death and destruction down on, on people. It's, it's, it's almost beyond my imagination. Uh, and now Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons. I don't know if he will. If he does, that'll start a nuclear war. America will respond in kind and then we're all dead. So that we're on the edge of nuclear catastrophe. We're on the edge of annihilation. And we just go about our lives, you know, watching television and thinking what next we'll buy and what food we'll cook without and and the question is well not the question but the problem is that those people in congress are not our leaders they are our representatives they're voted in by us to represent us and we are their leaders and what we need to do is educate them 
we need to go and see them when they come back to their districts and say, look, if you don't read this book and you don't pass this legislation against this weapon and this weapon, I'll make sure you don't get re-elected. Well, that was so in the 80s. We had so many people behind us. I could go to Congress and Tip O'Neill, who was the leader of the House, darling Tip, would come out and say to me, what can I do for you, doctor? And I said, I want you to play the last epidemic, which was made by physicians, the social responsibility about nuclear war, um, on every single TV set in Congress. And he did. And the reason he would see me is because he knew that 80% of Americans supported what I supported, you see. So that's power, political power. We have much more power than the corporations, but leaving a vacuum, they just enter Congress and they lobby all the time and they pay huge amounts to the Congress people. I think 45% of Congress people own shares in the killing industry. I call it Pentagon the Department of Murder, which is what it is. It's not defence. It's murder, pure and simple. But but let's say you know Putin did use a low yield nuclear warhead in Ukraine. What what's the logic of that? What what is his you know what's the grammar of that? Or the, I have the no logic? idea. I have no idea because he would know. He's not stupid. He would know that America would respond in kind. I don't think he will. I think he's bluffing. Well, but we didn't think he'd he invade. We didn't think Russia would invade Ukraine either. So, no. right. Um, yep. Well, well, I know that back in the in the sixties, Herman Kahn, who you know wrote about escalation ladders, and uh, and during the Reagan administration, who was it that talked about a nuclear shot across the bow if it became necessary? I think it's important to remember uh, that the Reagan administration scared the hell out of the American public with its loose talk of using nuclear weapons, um, and. Uh, it does seem to me that it, successive successor administrations learned not to talk about it because talking panics the public. Um, and so the real question is, how does one generate, uh, you know, renewed concern amongst the public? Uh, uh, and uh, well, you know, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying that that I, seems to I me... can tell you how, how to do it through okay. the media. You know, I did it. In the, in the 80s, I was everywhere, on all television sets and in the radio and the newspapers, educating people and people, and I apparently turned into quite a powerful public speaker. I suppose I became an actress in a way. And uh, what I would do as a doctor for like maybe a thousand people, would I'd, I'd give fact after fact after fact after fact to establish my credibility as a scientist and a doctor. And after they'd heard all that, I'd go for their, well, I'd say guts, for their souls and talk to them about how much they love their babies and how much, you know, smelling a rose, what that means and how much they love their lives. And, and usually I'd end up with the audience in tears. That used to uh, stimulate huge amounts of activity in women particularly mm -hmm. would rise up they'd start organizations mm -hmm. which became national I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of organizations across america in the 80s 
opposed to nuclear war. I started Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament. I wanted to call it the Women's Party for Survival. And people said to me, don't be stupid. We've only got two parties in this country. You can't have a third. <laughs> well, actually, through the retrospectoscope, I wish I had done that because that's what we need. We need 52% of the population is composed of women. And we are run by our hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and oxytocin. When we breastfeed, this lovely hormone is liberated into our bloodstream. And I, I remember thinking when I was breastfeeding my babies, I could feed everyone on the planet. There was a very interesting experiment done by a physiologist in San Francisco who was looking at hormones. And she noticed that when there was an altercation in the lab, the men would go into their rooms and fume and shut the door. The, men, the women would come in the next day, polish the, the, the desks and the counters, make the coffee, talk, you know, and make friends. So she did the hormone levels. The men's testosterone went sky high and the women's oxytocin went very high. Hmm. That's the difference. Now, when men are threatened, they do produce a bit of oxytocin, but mostly they produce testosterone, which is the you know, the hormone for killing. If you look back over, over centuries, men have killed and killed and killed and killed. The men on the Greek vases with their horses and spears, you know, killed and killed. I think it's time to take a, a leaf out of the Greek play Les Estrada, where the men kept killing and killing and the women said, okay, no more sex. Guess what? They stopped killing. And there's a country in Africa where a similar thing occurred just a couple of decades ago where a woman leader said, okay, no more sex, and they stopped killing. Isn't it interesting that sex is more important to men than killing other people? Well, it doesn't surprise me. I've been saying for a long time that the world is led by uh, hopped-up, crazed teenagers. Um, yeah. You know, Men who never get any older than about 12 or 13. Yeah, with their testicles pumping out testosterone. <laughs> uh, we need to take another another short break. You're listening to KS. We're, we're getting to etiology or the cause yes, of a disease. Yes, yes, yeah. okay. Well, you're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Dr. Helen Caldicott, well-known nuclear anti-nuclear activist who was, was very prominent in the 1980s and appeared in several films, including an Academy Award-winning uh, documentary, and is still um, speaking out against nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy. Um, one of the things that you've expressed concern about is the rapid implementation of a fully artificial intelligence-controlled nuclear arsenal by the United States. Now, one of the things I, I recognize is that this has been a uh, repeated trope in films starting back in the, with Dr. Strangelove, and at any event. Um, and you mentioned The Dead Hand, which of course is, uh, was the inspiration, well, I don't know if it was the inspiration, but very much like the doomsday machine in Dr. Strangelove. So what, what's new about this, about the idea of an AI-controlled uh, nuclear arsenal? Yeah. Um, about five years ago, I read an article by Stephen Hawking, the mm -hmm. great physicist who died 
shortly thereafter he had motor neuron disease and he was in a wheelchair, um, saying, predicting that they're putting nuclear weapons on AI, artificial intelligence, and he said within 10 years it makes nuclear war a certainty. Because the nuclear, the, because the computers are then programmed to think like human beings, but with no human input. And I thought, oh my God. So I organized a symposium at the New York Academy of Sciences. Um, and from that came a book called Sleepwalking to Armageddon, where I got the best physicists and mathematicians and doctors in the country to address this issue hoping it would make a difference. Of course, it hasn't. Um, you can get the book. You, all my books are on my website, helencaldicott.com. But when, if you feel helpless listening to this, remember that me, I, an Australian woman, an alien, actually led the movement and we were given the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. So that any one of you can become as powerful as I have been. I was led by taking the Hippocratic Oath. My heroes in youth were Robin Hood and the Good Samaritan. Um, I nearly died from hepatitis caught from a patient. When I recovered, I thought my life doesn't belong to me anymore. I've been saved to, I suppose I thought, save the world. But any of you can do that. You can. You just have to get in your gut how powerfully dangerous this whole thing is, which is, I have that because I am a physician. And then set out like Joan of Arc or Joan of Arc and save the planet. If I've done it, you can. Uh, what, what, um, so how, how would you, um, propose that people start to get organized, especially, I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, climate change has, you know, it's a threat, but it sucked all of the oxygen out of the, uh, out of the atmosphere, so, so to speak. Um, and people are very, con it's, it's interesting, people are very, very concerned about a threat which is, you know, going to develop over decades, but are, seem very indifferent to the mm. threat of nuclear war. Um, and I'm just wondering, why, why do you have any ideas why that might be the case? Yeah, because, because nuclear war is out of the mainstream consciousness because no one's talking about it. The media will determine the fate of the earth. President Jefferson said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. You know... <laughs> You remember Y2K and no one was worrying about it? We couldn't get the media to... Well, I was in the Herb's Lecture Theatre in San Francisco where the United Nations Treaty was signed. Next door in the auditorium was Gorbachev talking and I was talking to a group in, in the next door auditorium. And Patch Adams, that clown doctor, was there. And we were very worried about Y2K because the computers may not all switch over, it could induce meltdowns of reactors or a nuclear war. And in fact, I even went to the White House and talked to the people in charge of the Y2K problem and they said everything's in order. Well, in fact, it wasn't. And the program computers in the Pentagon had not been upgraded. Anyway, so Patch Adams went to the market and he said, I've been telling Helen... <laughs> 
for years that we should walk naked, take our clothes off and walk across America. I said, oh, God, Patch. So I went to the market and I said, who'll do that? And practically the whole audience put up their hands. <laughs> so he went out to this velvet sort of entry and I thought, oh, well. So I took my clothes off, and but I kept my scarf on and pearls, which hit, hit the naughty bits. Um, Patch Adams took his... And soon about 50 or 60 people, and you can look at this up on, I think you can Google it, were walking down Van Ness Avenue naked. And, you know, the human body as a physician is beautiful, thin, fat, whatever. It's beautiful. And people started chanting, nudes, not nukes, nudes, not nukes. And people were pulling up in their cars and clapping us. They didn't even know what it was about. Finally, we went back because I didn't want to go off in a, in a police van to the jail, stuck naked. <laughs> and when we got back to the foyer, people were so proud. No one took their clothes off. I was talking to the ABC on the phone, stark naked. And, of course, the next day we were in the New York Times because uh, that's very interesting for the media to see the naughty bits of people. I mean, it was ridiculous. But there are always ways to get the media attention, always. Just have to use your imagination and see what they'll cover. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the that's the key. Uh, well, we're coming to the end of our of our time uh, together. Yeah. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we haven't addressed? You've been a very very good interviewer, and I thank you very much. Um, yeah, I really would encourage you to go to my webpage, HelenCaldicott.com. Look at the interview with Reagan. Look at If You Love This Planet. Get all the books that are there. I've contributed and written about 13 books. Educate yourself. Education is the key to uh, the planet. And I think I'd like to just end by saying, who were these crazy, crazy bloody scientists who built all these weapons of mass destruction knowing that they're murderous and populated the planet with them? Why have they done it? What, what is this psychological diagnosis? And they need to be pulled in, refrained, maybe imprisoned, I don't know. But we can do it. We're the majority. And don't forget 52% of us are women. Don't mention Maggie Thatcher because when women, women some women get into power, they emulate the male ethos. Mm-hmm. But most women are loving, kind, and very good at resolving arguments. Oxytocin probably should be injected into every male nostril because that settles them down. And I guess I'll end with one funny thing. I was giving a lecture about this and a man came up to me. He said, I've got prostate cancer. He said, I had my first dose of estrogen yesterday and for the first time I felt like shopping. <laughs> <laughs> Are, are you still going out on the road giving talks? And, and... Well, no, because I'm I'm nearly eighty five and I'm right. scared of the bloody virus. Ah, um, uh-huh. My daughter, who's a doctor, said, "Mum, get it here, and then you can go to America because you don't want to get sick in America." Because I mean, medical care here is free in Australia. But you know, you, the thing is, I've been immunized, but you can get it again. You mm-hmm. can get it when you're immunized. Yeah. You can get it again when you've had it. Yeah doesn't prevent you getting it again and you can become contagious when you get it again 
So it's well, a very, very tricky virus. Well, I would, I would encourage you, if at all possible, to, you know, to make a, uh, a, a tour of the United States, because I think, <laughs> well, I think, you, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us remember what you did back in the 1980s, and those who are too young to remember, you know, need to, uh, need to hear you. You want to organize it, though. It's a big well, organized you know, you know. No, I'm not. I'm not so good at doing that. So that's when you see. That's what has to happen. Otherwise, it won't happen. I can't organise it from here. But anyone well, listening who's got the ability to do that, you know, we should get um, Wall Street sort of psychologists, you know, yeah, Madison Avenue yeah. psychologists to get together and organise. Well, just a thought. I want to thank oh, you. I'd like to go and meet with Putin. Oh, not well. Well, Putin, yes, but with um, Biden and break through his psychic numbing, and I would like to address a joint session of Congress and break through their psychic numbing and get them to cry. Yeah, well, if, if you were watching that. if you were watching the show the last week in, uh, in the House of Representatives, you know, oh. good luck on that one. Look, look oh, no. I want to thank you for being my guest on Sustainability Now. Yeah, it's been a joy. Okay, well, thank you so much. And if, as, as we know, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Caldecott's activities, past and present, visit her website at www.helencaldecott.com. And thank you once again. And thank you very much for having me. Okay. When you go out into the world and walk on the earth, have you ever wondered what was beneath your feet? Animals and plants, of course, but mostly soil. Soil is a wonderful substance, an essential element in the ride of life that covers the planet's continents. But soil is not without life of its own. A handful, handful of fertile soil is home to more organisms than there are people on Earth. And these organisms are vital to plant and animal nutrition and growth. In two weeks, my guest on Sustainability Now will be Dr. Chelsea Carey, Director of Soil Research and Conservation at Point Blue Conservation Science, located in Petaluma and Bolinas, California. Join us for a fascinating conversation about the world beneath our feet. That's on Sunday, October 29th, from 5 to 6 p.m., right here. On Community Radio for the Monterey Bay region, K-Squid, 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz, KSQT, 87.9 FM in Prunedale, our translator for Monterey at 89.5, and ksquid.org, streaming on the internet. And if you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org slash sustainability now, and Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. So thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make KSquid your community radio station and keep it going. And so until every other Sunday, sustainability now. Oh uh-huh.